Greetings and welcome. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I am not Frank Zafiro. This is his uh, co-host for this episode, Colin Conway. And uh, Frank, why don't you say hello? Hey, greetings, everyone. Uh, Colin, thanks for coming on here for the season finale. And to be clear, this is part one of that finale. Uh, We'll have the second part of the interview with Mark next episode. Uh, it's good to have you. You you might have the record for being the most frequent guest on the show if I went back and took some stats. I might. I might. It's been a little while since I've been on, so I'm very excited to be here and uh, helping you with this interview today. Well, when I asked you to come on the show, uh, asked you who you might want to interview, you did not hesitate uh, when you chose uh, Mark Bergen. Uh, so maybe uh, maybe tease a little bit about Mark before we go into the, the sponsorship piece uh, with Lance Wright from Down Out Books. Go ahead. Yeah. You know, I met Mark over at uh, BoucherCon when it was in uh, Dallas uh, a couple years back. And uh, he is a fantastic guy. He's a former uh, law enforcement officer, actually retired uh, law enforcement officer from Alexandria, Virginia, super guy, easy to talk with, which I think we're going to find out here pretty quickly. And uh, he was the guy that I wanted to chat with again. And you've talked to him a bunch offline, right? Yeah. After, after we met, um, like I said, at the conference, he and I struck up a friendship and have uh, continued via email and then uh, multiple uh, Zoom calls because we've all learned how to Zoom during this COVID uh, time. It's almost the COVID era at this point. The <laughs> <laughs> COVID era. Yeah. 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 And he's just, he is a really, really uh, neat person and uh, has got a lot of valuable insight into the uh, law enforcement experience. And uh, I like picking his brain and chatting with him. So. Well, we're all going to get to chat with him in uh, just a few moments. Uh, but first, uh, I do need to tell you that uh, Wrong Place Right Crime is proudly sponsored by Down and Out Books. Down and Out Books is a mid-sized publisher of crime fiction, most of it at the grittier and darker and seedier end of the spectrum. Uh, if that's something you like, you can find out more by going to their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's Down and Out Books, all spelled out, dot com. Down Out Books, take the journey with us. And because this is a feature episode, we're going to hear from Lance Wright about some titles from Down and Out Books that will be available in June. Hi, Frank, and thanks again for the opportunity to talk about upcoming titles from Down and Out Books. The latest in the Friday Harbor series by Susan Wingate, When You Leave Me, opens the month of June. A small island, an earthquake, and a man with dementia all ignite for a harrowing tale about deceit, love, and murder. Next up is Lawyers, Guns, and Money, crime fiction inspired by the music of Warren Zevon, an anthology edited by Libby Cudmore and Art Taylor. Fifteen fantastic writers, avid fans of Zevon's genius, offer fresh spins on his music with tales that span the mystery genre. Jeffrey Hess has a new book titled Scar Tissue, a psychological noir novel that stunningly brings to life a world others not dare dream of. And closing out the month, we have the latest from Colin Campbell in the Vince McNulty series, Swing Gang, where the studio PI finds a runaway girl hiding at the Hollywood Boulevard location during a night shoot. And finally, season four of A Grifter Song comes to a close with The Low White Plain by Paul Garth and Dangerous to Know by Hilary Davidson. 
Have a great summer, Frank. Well, thank you, Lance. Uh, some good books to check out there. Uh, another good book to think about is uh, Mark Bergen's Apprehension. And uh, Colin, maybe you can uh, tell us a little bit more about Mark and why you wanted to talk to him and explore his book. Well, he when he retired from the uh, police department in Alexandria, he felt like he had some unfinished business there that he wanted to address uh, with his book, Apprehension. Well, I don't want to give away too much here. Uh, I think that we're going to cover that with Mark and uh, a fantastic book. I hope uh, reader or listeners will go out there and, and read it. Well, then let's not waste any more time. Let's dive into our conversation with Mark Bergen. Hey, Mark, welcome to the show. Hey, Cog. It's fun to be here. Well, tell us uh, where exactly here is. Well, here is Alexandria, Virginia where I've been since 1983. I came here to be a newspaper reporter and I was a reporter until January, well, until just before January of 1986, which is when I started on the Alexandria Police Department. And I served there for, well, I served, I was there for 28 years. I served for 27 and a half, but the last half was me recovering from the two heart attacks that led to my, uh, my retirement and which Oddly enough, fortunately led to my new and current and much more fun career of <laughs> pretending to be a writer. Well, I want to, I want to ask you about those heart attacks in a, in a little bit. I, I think that those are really, uh, an interesting story, but why don't you talk about the, what you did, uh, during your career, uh, in, uh, Alexandria. Almost everything except be a detective, which is why my stories are not detective stories. Um, started in patrol. After a year, I was transferred to a brand new unit called the tactical unit, which was just supposed to be a bunch of guys available for parades and surveillance. But we suddenly discovered that we could sneak up on the open air drug deals that were happening in our, in our more rundown communities. Because they didn't have cruisers for us, we would steal admin cars to go out on the street. So we're driving civilian vehicles and we found when we drove down into the, into the neighborhood and just put jackets over our uniforms, we could get right up on top of people. So we became a jump out narcotics squad without anybody really intending us to. And once we did it, they liked it because we about doubled the number of felony arrests in the city from 1987 to 88 to 89, which were my, which was my time there. But anyway, I got out of that, went back to patrol, became a field training officer, became a bike officer was in the community support section for a long time. Finally, well, finally successfully applied for, was trans, was promoted to sergeant and four years later became a lieutenant and I was lieutenant when I retired. Wow. Wow. So you did, you did a lot of stuff. One of the things that you had mentioned that you used to be a newspaper reporter and then you went into law enforcement, kind of two diverse worlds. What made that jump or what caused you to make that jump? You know, before I got to being a cop, I thought they were, were much more similar than they are going out into <laughs> asking questions and writing things down. I didn't take into account the having to tackle people and getting spit on and the other things that are much more unique to the police world. Uh, I'd grown up very interested in, in police and mysteries and law enforcement, but I grew up, uh, in a part of the country where. Um, since I wasn't brutal, corrupt, or racist, 
I didn't think I would fit into that police department. Um, and it wasn't until I got to Alexandria and as a, this is embarrassing, 26, 27 years old. And I'm finally a reporter riding along with the cops and sitting next to them in port and figuring out that they're normal people. They're the same as you and me, uh, all excited about sending guys to prison, all excited about helping people. And I thought, yeah, I guess I could be a cop. So I applied to Alexandria and one other department got hired in January of 1986. Have you uh, ever been to Alexandria, Colin? I have not. I, I've been there. I went there for a, uh, a class that the IACP was putting on and, uh, it's beautiful. It's a beautiful city, very old, uh, you know, Eastern, Southeastern city, but maybe Mark, you could kind of share what's unique about Ex Alexandria and also kind of where it sits. And, and I know that comes with some interesting, uh, challenges. We're kind of in the middle. Alexandria is right across the Potomac River from Washington, D.C. So we're almost a corner in D.C. in terms of a lot of the crime. There's a river there, so there are bridges, but we get a lot of drug, crime, and criminals, and parthies, and robbers that come over from the much more beat-up and lower-income neighborhoods in the larger city of Washington, D.C. Coming from Philadelphia, Alexandria seemed very southern. To most of the South, Alexandria is the North. So we're not exactly claimed by anybody. Um, mm. wasn't until I got down here that I heard the term, the war of Northern aggression, <laughs> which is what they call the civil war down here. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I, I worked huh. that into, into the book. It's Alexandria is the seventh most densely populated city in the United States. 16.5 square miles. And I think the latest census is around 165,000 people. So we had a lot of people crammed in, which gives us some areas that are very city. Old town Alexandria is very city and close and we just don't have skyscrapers. The West end of Alexandria is a bit more open, larger neighborhoods and houses, larger apartment complexes. Uh, and I like the way in Alexandria, you'd be assigned to one part of the city and three months later, you'd be assigned to another part of the city and three months later when we started. So it gave me a greater opportunity to see a wider range of calls. I also liked the fact that we had permanent shifts. I chose the evening shift and was lucky enough to get it. I mean, most rookies end up on the midnight shift and you're sort of stuck there. And I've, I've always felt that that's an unfortunate way to run a department. I was very unpopular for that. But I think it creates a very insular outlook among the three ships. The midnight guys are, they're hard chargers, but they've got a different attitude about the city than the evening shift that I like that had a great wide range of calls versus the daylight guys who are the old senior come out in the morning and I've got my morning call, my morning report, have lunch, got my afternoon report and I'm done. And I, I thank God I was never actually assigned to days, but, uh, they're all hardworking and now there's much more of a churn. And so it's not so bad. So you mentioned it a little bit earlier. Tell us about the heart attacks. <laughs> um, my wife and I were fortunate enough to save a lot of money and we bought a beach house in Kitty Hawk, North Carolina, the outer banks. So we own a home that's right across the street from the houses that are on the dunes, So we can see the ocean. We rent it during the summer. That helps us pay. But then we keep a week for the family to go sitting out on my deck about eight in the morning. 
having coffee with my wife and her mom. And they go inside and I'm about to go for a run. My habit is to get fat over about a year, then work out for about a month and take off some weight. I'm about to start doing that. I thought, no, I'm not going to go for a run because I feel a little sick to my stomach. And I woke up flat on my back. Instantly went from sitting there sipping coffee, flat on my back under the table. I'd spilled my coffee on myself. I see it soaking into the, the wood of the decking boards. And I've got no idea what's going on. I've got no history of heart disease. I've got no long-term high blood pressure, all that crap. I go find Ruth, my wife, and say, I just fainted. What do you mean you fainted? I fainted. I fell out out there. She said, you're dehydrated. You've been on vacation for a week, drinking nothing but coffee and beer. Drink some water. If it happens again, we'll go to the, the clinic. It happened again. About two hours later, I was walking back. We'd gone to the beach. And I began to feel a little funny and woke up face down this time from standing. Uh, I broke my glasses. I cut my forehead. I walked back and get her. And we go to the local clinic and they can't find anything wrong with me. There's a blood test you can do for a typical heart attack. The heart attack is an injury. There's an enzyme that's secreted. It's all above me, but they can't find anything wrong. I'm sitting there. This is a tourist town, right? On a Saturday morning, I look out the window and I see an ambulance pulling up to this clinic. I think, oh, there's somebody having a worse week than me. They say, no, that's for you. You're going in that <laughs> hospital. And then we'll see if they can find what's wrong with you. And the nurse puts her hand on my shoulder and says, I'm going to be praying for you. And that was sort of telling. So here's the funny part. I end up going from there to another hospital and they give me an angiogram. That's the thing where they score to die in and they read it on a little gizmo that looks like a mini MRI. My wife is in the other room with the technician while the doctor is squirting the die. He's looking at a screen. The technician's looking at the screen. The technician looks at the screen and says, uh-oh. My wife is sitting next to him and says, what do you mean? Uh-oh. He's, oh, I'm, 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 everything's fine. The doctor will tell you. I had a 100% blockage of the left anterior descending artery, which is the main artery that feeds your heart. Uh, it's called the widow maker because they don't find it in living people. Uh, I had an 80% blockage of another artery and a 30% blockage of a third. And I had no idea. I'd apparently had them for a long time because some of the other arteries had grown up around them. And my choices were they could put in little stents, like, like run them in arthroscopically, or I can have open heart surgery. And the stents would only last a couple of years, but the open heart should last me the end of my life. So I said, cut, cut. They transferred me to a hospital. I, I'm, I'm a member of the zipper club now. I have, I have the scar. Uh, but when I got back to work, after a period of rehab, the city's doctor and my doctor said, you should not go back to work. This was stress-related. If you go back to work, you'll be dead within two years. You'll be dead within two months is what my doctor said. I said, okay. Wow. I got 28 years on, I'm out the door. And fortunately, I was able to do it without being a disability um, retirement. Because I didn't feel bad. I didn't feel disabled. They put my heart back together. I was all strong. I mean, I can go out and run four miles slowly, but I can. And this was at a time when officers from another jurisdiction made the news because they had gone out on disability, but we see them out running jet skis and teaching karate and doing all these things while they're allegedly disabled. I didn't want that label. So retired straight, tried to figure out something to do. I knew I had to have something to do. Pulled out some notes for a novel that I'd started writing about 30 years prior. And once I'd written the notes, I had to put it away. It was sort of cathartic. 
It's going through a hard time. It's the time of my divorce. Uh, but in writing these ideas down, I'd always wanted to write a book. But once I wrote the notes for it, I was done. I didn't go back to it and I felt better. But I began thinking, what can I do now? So um, it took me a while to find the notes, but I remembered what they were in and I expanded them out and I spent a year writing a book, spent another year rewriting the book and it eventually got published. And I'm, I'm very proud of it. Nobody's read it, but, but I'm proud of it. I'm working on book number two and three and four and five. I think we, well, both, I think we both read it. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. We both have read it. Well, that, 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 that's half the West coast of, of my fans. So thank you. Well, and, and Frank and I are both big fans of it. So why don't you tell us a little bit about, about your book? My book's called apprehension and it's about the worst week of a detective's life. Uh, he's preparing for a court case involving a child molester who's the, the victim is the molester's son. So there's a child abduction involved in it. And I had started with the idea because it stemmed from a real case in Alexandria of a guy who failed to return his son at the end of a court order visitation. And in Virginia, if you don't return a kid, that, that, that's child abduction. But there were issues with it. And they actually had to rewrite the law to close a major loophole in the law that I'd rather not discuss too much because that's the key to the book. But it, it, among the reasons why the book is set in 1988 is because they changed the law in 1989 and it wouldn't have been real. I wanted very much to write the real novel about cops, never knowing there were already two guys out in Washington doing that already and really damn well. But anyway, we, we'll get to you in a minute. Um, the book had originally been about race relations. When I started envisioning it, uh, it was when I was a member of that drug unit and I wanted to write a book about what it was like to be a bunch of white cops doing nothing but arresting a bunch of young black men. Cause that was, that was the reality of Alexandria in 1987, 88, 89, 99% of the street level drug activity was in the projects was among the black community, or at least the sales were among the black community. Sometimes white people would go in and buy, but, uh, it was, it was hard. It was a drag because when I eventually got out of the unit after a little over two years, it was because I was arresting the same people for the third time I'd arrest a kid and he'd get the deal called the Colby deal after the judge that, that created it, charging with the felony of crack cocaine possession. But he'd plead guilty to a misdemeanor of possession of drug paraphernalia, get uh, a year suspended pending uh, probation, uniform good behavior, and completion of drug treatment. So it was great. You know, the, here was the opportunity for all of these people to do better. And they didn't. So I'd arrest them again. And they'd get felony time. But in Virginia at the time, felony time was about one-sixth the face value of whatever they got. So if they got 10 years, it meant they served a little over a year and they might not even go to prison. They'd stay in the local jail. So then they'd get out and I'd arrest them the third time. And I started thinking, I'm not doing any good. I am not accomplishing anything for the city other than playing Starsky and Hutch. Now that was fun, but it wasn't what I got into police work for. It, it, it's valid work, but it wasn't what I want. So I got out of it, but it was a drag for us. We could see that there was a clear racial disparity there and we had nothing we could do about it. 
we couldn't go into the white neighborhoods and arrest people for selling cocaine on the corner because they weren't. You know, it, it, there, there might, as, might have been just as much powder moving through the bars as there was crack cocaine on the street, but it's hard to go into a bar in a police uniform and stake out for the guy in the bathroom selling the powder. So we, we were, there were great racial inequities in the arrests we were making. So Mark, there is a pretty large contingent of, of people in this country who are fairly critical of the war on drugs, not just for the racial elements that you point out, but just for, for what it has accomplished or failed to accomplish in general and some of the side effects of it. And, you know, this, this episode is about you and your work, so I don't want to get too sidetracked, but, uh, uh, cause we could do two hours on this topic, but, uh, do you have any thought thoughts on that, on the war on drugs and the, uh, resulting militarization of the police and so forth that, that a lot of people have talked about? Do you have a, a stance on that? Um, I have a complicated stance on that because I was certainly the tip of that spear in 1987 was when crack cocaine really started appearing in Washington, DC and its suburbs. In fact, I probably threw away the first crack I ever saw because I didn't know what it was. Why has this kid got peanuts in his pocket? <laughs> we, we hadn't been trained in it. It didn't exist. Um, whether it was a CIA plot to work with the Nicaraguan Contras and trade drugs for guns I did, and to pollute the inner, I, I don't believe it was a plan to pollute the inner city. I think that if members of our government and the clandestine services were involved in the bringing in of cocaine for the money to do other things, I don't know. And I don't understand it. You know, in, in 1987, I was a 28 year old cop with the most exciting job on the police department, wear plain clothes, grow a beard, drive unmarked cars, jump out and chase bad guys all day, all day, all day. And yeah, it happened that we did all the chasing in the black community. Or at that time we had one neighborhood that was, was heavily Latino and that was starting to grow up. So the poor community. And in Alexandria, poor equates to minority. So that's where we were. It, it, it certainly had, a, had an unfair racial impact. And that long-term impact of all I was doing was creating felony records for these kids who maybe couldn't vote thereafter. I don't know what's been done to change that. And at the end of, at the end of a career, maybe all of that time and effort could have been spent better trying to give drug treatment because it's not just me arresting a crack buyer and a crack seller that crack buyer had to break into a car last night to steal the stereo that gives him or like five stereos to give him enough to buy 20 bucks worth of crack so there's all kinds of other crime that is attendant to the drug trafficking where do we stop it where do we do it um I, I think America is all or was almost ready to look at how do we help people? We're falling away from that now. And I really don't want to get political because I could spend five hours on political, but we don't seem, we seem to be as a country moving away from let's all help each other. There's a lot of people that just want to punish people for transgressions. So I, I, I don't know how to balance that. I believe that more drugs should be decriminalized, not necessarily legalized, but if we decriminalize them, 
then the cops don't have to spend all the time doing this. What could a squad of eight officers do different than go out and just arrest five or six drug dealers a night? Maybe we could catch rapists. Maybe we could catch burglars. Maybe we could focus on stolen cars. Maybe we could direct traffic and help people out in the morning going, going to work. There's all kinds of, you know, cops do so many things. Let's, let's find better things for them to do so we can use their time better. The few that are staying in the police in police service. You know, one of the things that I, I, I don't want to say one of, but there are many things I, I liked about apprehension, the, the realism that was in it, uh, attracted me to the book, the book also the the regional flavor in, in the book is something that I really liked. Being a law enforcement officer in Spokane um, for a short period of time, I know how police work is in this part, or I, I have an idea of what it's like in this part of the country. So reading about it in Alexandria, I found very interesting. Also, your detail about the court system over there, I found extremely interesting. And one of the things that I was hoping you could just you know, touch on real quick was is Commonwealth Day. <laughs> we don't have anything like that. Commonwealth Day was every Thursday, all the little cases would be heard. I mean, trials could be scheduled, but mostly on Thursday, you'd go in and you'd testify in a motion to suppress. Anytime I arrest a guy for drugs, there's a motion to suppress. So I've got to do a mini trial to tell the judge why I had a, a reason to actually go in this guy's pockets. It's because I saw him with drugs. It's because my partner saw him through binoculars with drugs. Um, so all kinds of motions and hearings and arguments. And it's not unusual for an officer just to testify in five different hearings in one day. And it's almost impossible to keep them straight because they're all the same damn case. I was on such and such a corner and my partner said that so-and-so had just bought drugs and I went and arrested them. So at times, and we looked like idiots. But somehow the judges weren't that down on it. They didn't like us anyway. But you can read from a report. You know, if your honor, if I can refresh my memory, now you know they're going to grab the report, but they've already got it. I, I'm, I'm guessing that discovery is the same out there as it is here. The defense already has my report and all the statements and all of the drug tests and everything else. So there's nothing secret in my hand. So I would have to testify, okay, this is the case of Joe Grabonskowitz. Yeah. On this, on, um, on April 5th, and I'm looking at it and reading it. There's just so many cases over and over and over. It, we're literally walking around with a stack of files and sometimes a box of evidence that might be the evidence envelope that's got the crack vials from Grabonskowitz right next to the crack pipe that belongs to Ramirez, right next to the gun that belongs to Johnson. I'm just carting them room to room to room. Uh, wow. But an interesting part was we became not bonded, but very close and cooperative with both the prosecutors and the defense bar. You guys may know this is how I met my wife. She was a public defender who was brought to Alexandria when the public defender's office was facing that doubling of felony cases. So when I met my wife, was when she was the defense attorney in cases I arrested. Once we actually started dating, she spread the word in her office and other people would handle her cases. But it actually got to the point where her office couldn't handle any cases for the unit and it got complicated and then she had to leave. 
but she beat me on the last case that we had together. Uh, and I knew she would. It was one of those cases where the moment I grabbed the guy, I thought, he's got the drugs and everything, but our courts aren't going to support me grabbing him around the corner from where he was supposed to be. That was just a little too far away for me to independently go and go in his pockets. He had the drugs. I proceeded with the arrest, but I was fairly certain that I would lose it on a motion to suppress. So then, then she left the public defender's office and we got married. Hey, uh, uh, there's a dual meaning for the word apprehension. That was one of the things that struck me when I was reading yep. it. Um, I assume that was purposeful. Very. Uh, and it, and it had been my title for years. And in fact, that's one of the reasons why I was more comfortable going with the very, very small and kind of unhelpful publisher that I had. I knew that I'd be guaranteed to use that name. Um, the quill imprint of ink shares gave me, I, I could, I designed my cover. I got all my blurbs. Uh, I knew I wasn't going to have to change the characters because they didn't edit me. Uh, but I knew that I could keep the title too. And that was very important to me. Yeah, it, it is, it is definitely, definitely the double entendre of apprehension, meaning arresting or taking someone into custody and being nervous, scared, and having anxiety because the book is about anxiety. It ended up not being so much about that black versus white problem and it became more uh about stress and the way it did was when i right after the heart attack and i'm moving through the medical system i don't know i, I pray you guys have never been here but when you move from hospital to hospital like i did and i ended up at the place where i had the surgery and then you go in the emergency room then you go every time they stop you and they say hey, do you know why you're here and they're trying to assess you they're trying to see how how much you understand what you're going through. And it's, and I would say, um, I got a hundred percent blockage of the LAD and their eyes would get really wide. Uh, and I had one nurse say, you're not supposed to be here. God must have something more for you to do. And that isn't exactly how I thought about God, but I thought about it. And I thought as I went through and as I retired and I, and I had that in mind, what more can I do here? Is there something more than just, just write a book? Can I do some good out of it? So I began thinking, what if I gave half the profits of the book to something like police anti-suicide, which ended up morphing into some of the topics of the book, leaning more toward the stress leads to suicide. So, and it's funny, the second book is very much about religion and does God work down here among us? My hero will survive something that he shouldn't survive in a way that all the people around him start to think means he's blessed, means he was protected by God in some way. And again, that isn't exactly his view, but he has to confront that as he's going through all the other crap that happens in a police novel. So apprehension takes place in 1988 uh, with uh, Detective John Kelly. Is the second book going to take place in 1989? Um, I'm going to do what a lot of other authors have done and not be very mindful of the significant amount of time that passes if, if they let me. I tried writing it when I first started writing the next book, which is going to be called St. Michael's Day, if they'll let me. It was going to be the year after 9-11. 9-11 was a very, very big deal here in Alexandria because uh, we're right across from D.C. Uh, it had a big impact. We changed a lot of the ways that we, that we did work. 
So it was set back then because I kind of liked it being at that point, 11 or 12 years after the events of the first book. My characters could grow, they could marry, they could have kids. But the more I was writing it, what I had thought to bring out in the book, the changes in police work just weren't showing up. It wasn't significant. And I thought, why, why confuse my readers again? So I'm going to make the, the next book in modern times. Among the reasons why the book, the first book happened in 1988, other than reality, was if anybody had a cell phone, none of the bad stuff would happen. They could all just call each other up and, and, and solve all their problems. But I, I tried writing it once to modern times and I had to have people, you know, the, the battery died. He dropped it out the window. He, he left it at home. So it, it didn't work. Uh, I finally decided I'm going to set the next book to roughly modern times, roughly now. And I have a character who was greatly, deeply affected by 9-11. We had some of our officers go to the Pentagon, which is maybe only two miles outside of our city limit, uh, and then go and also volunteer their time. I had a friend who was involved in evidence collection. And if you can imagine what some of the evidence was out of the inside of that airline, it was a horrible wreckage of people. And he's a mess right now. And I want to, I want to write that. So although I, had, I was going to set it to be one year after, 20 years after hasn't diminished the impact on this guy. So I'm going to use that in the book too. So it's going to be modern times. The third book is much more of a thriller. My hero goes to Ireland chasing a guy. My fourth book, my hero is going to get shot in the heart and almost die. And I'm going to put him through some of the stuff that I went through. And my fifth book is going to be, I'm going to try and tackle some of what you two guys just did so damn well in the ride-along, um, looking at black, white issues, looking at BLM and defund uh, reform police, uh, looking at some of the bad things the cops do um, that I don't quite know how to write yet, but your book's definitive. I can't wait till it's out to, to start telling people how good the ride-along is. Oh, you're well, very kind to say that. so. Yeah, thank you very much. Um, I, I want before we move past the uh, uh, apprehension, Mark. I wanted to ask you a couple of quick questions. Um, John Kelly is the main character. Uh, is that in any way an homage to NYPD Blue, or is it just a coincidence? <laughs> it wasn't until the book came out that somebody told me that that was David Caruso's name. I never watched NYPD. Oh. <laughs> well, I don't think, I, I think maybe I've seen one episode and I think it was the one where Dennis France was naked. Um, <laughs> I, 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 I never saw it and I didn't know. And I felt horrible. I thought, Oh my God, everybody's going to think that, but very few people have very few people brought that up. I hope it's not a, a bar to people's liking of it oh not at all i mean the, the show's been off the air for a bit and i just i was just curious yeah. because it the timing was such that it would be a, a very acceptable homage in my opinion so i was just curious if it was the, the other thing i wanted to touch on was one of the things you did in apprehension is something you don't see a lot of in you know police novels set in the last 30 years or 40 years maybe and it's how you handled uh leadership 
and that's a passion of mine. Uh, I taught leadership after I retired, and and even before that, it was something I, I I studied pretty heavily and was very interested in. And usually in police work, and I'm just as guilty as this as anyone, but usually in, in in police novels, rather, you will get the bombastic captain yelling at the detectives, you know, and that kind of stuff. You get these cliches, but you don't often see a real examination of what true leadership is like. Good leadership. In, in policing. And you had a lieutenant who was really trying to take care of John Kelly. And I won't give away any spoilers here, but I wanted to give you uh, kudos for how you really explored what he was trying to accomplish. And and maybe you could touch on that. What were you trying to show with that character? Um, much of the purpose of apprehension was I wanted to write a book that a cop could read and say, that's what it's like out there. Or that a cop could give to his family to say, hey, this is this is what it's like. This is what I go through. I, I, I wanted to, as, as truthfully as possible, examine lots of levels of police work. Maybe to the detriment of the story. I've had a lot of people say, well, you should have made it much more of a shoot 'em up. You should have made it, you know, this exciting and that exciting. And, and in, in real police work, we don't shoot people much. We don't really get shot at that much it, it, those those are things you can throw into a book to make it exciting but it's not real uh i had been a lieutenant i tried very very hard to be a good lieutenant i had had a lot of bad lieutenants and i i learned much more from the bad ones than the good ones i don't know the, the character just just grew on the page I, I when i originally from the notes that i had from a long time ago the story wasn't going to have a lieutenant at all but i had to have somebody that kelly could bounce off of i had to have somebody pulling some pulling some of the strings that that led things to happen so that that character grew up he's i think the lieutenant that i would have loved to have been i i i i don't think i was as, as good as him uh, I had a very good friend of mine who was once a deputy chief on this department and went on to be a chief at other, at other departments who said that that character was corrupt. Really? So he didn't like the corruption of that character because of the way he handled things. He engineers things mm -hmm. to fall well for the officers in ways that appear to satisfy the administrative requirements of the bureaucracy above him, but they don't clobber the cops like cops are so used to being clobbered by the third floor, by the brass. So he was, he's in the middle of that. And my friend said, that's, that's dishonest. I said, okay, well, <laughs> you know, I, I guess I'm glad I'm off the department now because, because uh, we don't want to go back and look at what, what might've been done. What I liked about the character was that he seemed to be seeking out, and you alluded to this, the best way to resolve the situation he was faced with in a way that would be moral and just, would satisfy the department's needs and either help or not hurt the person he was in charge of, Kelly in this case. And that's a very delicate balancing act in real life and, and often – some leaders, poor leaders, will just sacrifice one of those considerations or two of those to accomplish any one of them. If I can just satisfy the brass, I'm good to go, right? You know, or whatever. So, so I just, it was much more nuanced than you usually see leadership uh, portrayed. And I wanted to say that that was a great job. 
when we look back on, maybe you guys too, when we look back on what we've written, it, it, it's wonderful to take lots of credit for having a nuanced examination of leadership, for having a an interesting and informative look at the community of Alexandria. None of those was intentional. I really didn't sit down and think, I'm going to create a lieutenant that that is going to be this nuanced. He just came out. I've, I've also been criticized for the violence in the book. I had somebody say, oh, I hated it. It was so violent. And to me, it's not. It's, 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 it's real. It's, it's any given week of, of what a cop goes through that wasn't enhanced. I mean, yeah, it all happens to, to my one guy. This terrible thing happens to my one guy at the beginning. And that's rare, but it's not unheard of. What I think is interesting is that you said some people complained about the violence and then other people are complaining about, hey, it needs more action. You know, it's like <laughs> you're never going to please everybody. That's the old Ricky Nelson song, right? Um, <laughs> but, you you know, both both Frank and I have agreed on this, and I'm sure you've got a number of other fans out there. It's a fantastic book, and and I appreciated the the way that it looked at police work. And as I said before, I was really fascinated with the amount of detail you put in there about the court system. I found that extremely fascinating. Well, my, you know, I'm, I'm married to my wife who is not a trial attorney anymore. She's still an attorney, but we were so heavily involved in the cases. When I talked about knowing the, the defense attorneys, we made our own deals. The prosecutors trusted us to talk with the defense bar who could come to us and say, hey, what's this guy worth? Ah, he's nothing. Just get him the deal. Or no, this guy's a dickhead. We need to really jam him. We're going to really jam him. So we and and we could just be honest with them because that conversation wouldn't come out later. They wouldn't tell the judge. You said my client was so and so. Courts were interesting. I enjoyed going to court as a as a newspaper reporter. I loved going to court. Again, that was one of the ways that convinced me to be a cop. We had a case of a guy who broke into an apartment and the cops surrounded the place and he dove out a window. They called him the bird man. He was charged with two counts of rape. And I remember sitting next to the sex crimes detective as the verdicts were coming in and watching Barry shift it. And, you know, on the count of so-and-so guilty, and he's going, yes. And he's holding one finger and then guilty on so-and-so. Yes. Guilty. Yes. And the fact that this meant so much to him changed everything for me. Um, just showed me how human he was, how much it mattered. Uh, right. I was riding along with another detective in that same unit the night that he made the arrest in that child abduction case that becomes the core of my trial and how excited he was to catch the guy. And he was talking to the U.S. Marshals in San Francisco, helping them get the guy there. And I got a chance to sit there and watch it. I never could write that story. I covered the trial, but um, how he got him was was fascinating to see. And again, I never got to be a detective, so I, I, my, my stories aren't detective stories because I don't know how to put that kind of stuff together. They're all but mostly at the patrol level. Stuff happens about investigations, but um, I haven't been able to write that yet. All right, folks, there you are. There is the first part of our interview with Mark Bergen. Colin and I will be back next week with the second part of the season finale for the fifth season of Wrong Place, Right Crime. So join us again with Mark Bergen. A quick Zafiro update for you. 
If you listen to this the day it drops, June 21st of 2022, then a lot is happening. Uh, first off, All That This Life Requires, book two in the Jack McRae mystery series, it drops today. And not only that, but it drops at 99 cents for about the first week or so. So grab that while you can. In conjunction with that, uh, the Frank Zafiro summer sale is here. Uh, that means basically every single title that isn't a River City book in some fashion is on sale. And for this sale, uh, the first book in each of these series is free. The rest of the books in this series are 99 cents. And uh, I'm talking about the Bricks and Cam Jobs with Eric Beatner, the Spokompton series, the Anya series that I wrote with Jim Wilski, The Last Caller that uh, I wrote with Lawrence Kelter, uh, as well as all of the box sets associated with these series. Book one free, the rest 99 cents, $2.99 for the box sets. If you want to fill your Kindle with Frank Zafiro work, uh, this is one of two opportunities this summer you'll have to do that. Uh, there'll be a sale I'll talk about next week for the River City titles, but uh, grab these while you can. Uh, I also wanted to give a shout out to T.G. Wolf and her podcast, Mysteries to Die For. Uh, this has been a podcast that uh, focused on reading mysteries, initially classics, uh, with musical accompaniment. Uh, you know, one take, no editing, uh, just a, a read of, of a classic mystery uh, from uh, Poe to take your pick. But this season, the podcast is featuring original works, and I am proud to say that uh, my Stefan Copriva short story, Finding Hiawatha, is one of the stories that will be featured. In fact, it has been performed and is available to, to listen to now over at Murders to Die For. So punch in uh, TG Wolf, that's with two Fs, dot com, or you can go to my website and look up the anthologies, and uh, the Murder to Die For anthology has a link inside of it as well. Uh, that is Mysteries to Die For, a uh, podcast uh, by TG Wolf. All right, I want to say thank you to Mark and Colin for being on the show and for coming back next week for the second half of that interview. To Down and Out Books for sponsoring the show, and of course to you, the listener, for being here. One more episode to go for the season. I will see you next week. Until then, remember that sometimes you gotta be in the wrong place to write crime. <laughs> <laughs>